Hello, you're listening to the first ever Art of Dying Well podcast with James Abbott and Steph McGillivray. Welcome to the new Art of Dying Well podcast. What's that all about? Well, that's actually a very good question. About 18 months ago, we decided to build a website, artofdyingwell.org, mainly because we were conscious that death and dying are seen as taboo subjects, something we as a society really don't feel very comfortable with or talking about. Obviously, death comes to us all and touches everybody, whether it's our own journey or that of a loved one or a friend. So this monthly podcast aims to provide hopeful accompaniment on this very human of journeys. My name's James Abbott and I'm joined by Steph McGillivray. Hi Steph, how are you? Hi James, I'm very well, thanks. Now, there's a very good reason for you being here because you've immersed yourself in the Art of Dying Well project, uh, literally scouring the internet, reading loads of books, generally getting the lowdown on death and dying. Now, I've got to be honest, I thought you might end up being rather down in the dumps doing that, but actually you've really taken to it, haven't you? Absolutely. Yes, it was a bit daunting at first, I have to say. I didn't really know what to expect, but I gradually just got really, really into the subject. I got to know what a deep need there is for us to be talking about this sort of thing because this is the problem is people don't want to say it people don't want to say death dying and actually there are some really amazing people I discovered who are talking about it and who are really helping to change the way that we as a society in general think about death as you say, I spent a lot of time reading both sort of books, but obviously books go out of date quite quickly, especially on medical issues. So, you know, actually going to the front and meeting people in hospices, meeting chaplains, meeting people who are dying, going to death cafes and death chats, which is where anyone, you know, you don't even have to be remotely ill or know anyone who's dying at all. If you're just interested in the subject, people go and talk about it and you know, voice their fears, opinions. And what I really discovered is that there are amazing people out there talking about this who are full of life. And you're right, it's it's actually not a depressing subject at all. It made me realise that talking about death is just a natural part of life. And not only this, but that thinking and talking about death can actually help us to live better lives as well. You know, actually, when I remember when my brother died, he was only 24. Mm. So I remember that very well and being at the bedside. And you sort of have this preconception that, I mean, (laughs) clearly it's extremely sad and you're going through the grief and the pain of it. But there is sometimes, if you're lucky, something quite beautiful about it as well, isn't there? Have you seen that? Absolutely. And I think that there's, there's a certain beauty in the way that people deal with uh, the fact that they are going to die and actually that there is so much love and actually there can be joy in the dying process. Now, as I say, we have a website, artofdyingwell.org, where you can find all sorts of resources, video testimonies, loads and loads of stuff. Well, you've obviously learnt loads, Steph, and in fact... You have interviewed the first person we're going to talk to on these monthly podcasts. And the subject's very interesting, but I'd imagine, to be honest, challenging. Uh, Child bereavement. Tell us a bit about who you spoke to. Yeah, so we spoke to Sue McDermott, who works with Rainbows GB, which is a child bereavement support charity working largely in schools with children to um, help them talk about their bereavement And their main work is actually in training teachers to be able to help children in the communities that they're in so they don't become sort of outcast and having to see external therapists or anything. Sue explained to us that um, 
it's actually really about meeting children where they are. We deal with any children, uh, young people who have experienced a significant loss, and that could well be a death of a person within their family, but also as a separation, imprisonment, and uh, increasingly people who have come to the country and left behind all of their family, friends, way of life, and so they have lost all that they know. Young children can feel very cheated by that that they have not necessarily got an improved way of life. So we deal with all of those losses within rainbows. To think about talking to children about death and dying is a very, it's it's a difficult prospect. And um, I'd like to just ask you a few more questions about how you actually talk to children, the language that you use. For example, how would you explain to a child the fact that their parent or someone close to them has died? I think it's there's more than one situation, so it depends on the nature of the death. But if possible, um, if it's an anticipated death, if we know the person is going to be dying, we need to let the children know how serious the situation is. It all depends on their age and understanding as well. But the key to it is to, to be really clear in your language and that someone has died. We're not talking about going to sleep or being at peace. We're talking about someone whose natural life has died and has ended. So children need to know that. We need to answer their questions maybe many, many times. They want to know why it's happened and you'll give them the same answer, but they need reassurance that you are giving them the same answer. So I think the key to me would be the simplicity of the language creating time for them to ask those questions and really looking out for them to see how they are feeling about this situation that is very new and very scary to them, that the most important person in their lives is now missing. Children have a very short concentration span in all things, depending on their age. So they may be very sad for a few minutes and then within minutes be wanting to go out to play And that's not disrespectful or the the fact they don't love the person who's died. That's just being a child. So they are a child. They they will come in and out of grief very quickly. And we have to accept and understand that. I think repeating things and reassuring them that practical things, that their tea will be made, they will get to school, all of those things are really, really important. And finally, I was just wondering if you could give us an idea of what are what are the first steps to helping a child who is grieving what what are the first things that you would say to people to do or say there's no perfect way i think the what we have to acknowledge is the if it's over a death the worst thing possible has already happened so the child has lost someone they love so if it's been an anticipated death of a sibling or a relative and the hospice has maybe been involved, medical people have been involved, there's a little bit of preparation. But we mustn't underestimate the fact that death is still a shock. Even if you've thought it's going to happen. My dad was dying, he was 82, and the day he died it was a shock. Mm. He'd been, you know, I knew it was going to happen. I was a grown woman. It was a shock. So I would say we expect that reaction from a child that it's going to be a a shock to them. The biggest thing you can give them is your time. Time to express how they're feeling, but make sure they really know the person has died. Mm. 
answer their questions time and time and time again. However many times it takes, you have to answer those questions for them and be honest. Why did it happen? We don't know. Why did he get knocked down by a a vehicle? Because someone was driving badly. And we don't know why some people have died. We all will die at some time. I think it's important to let the child know that you are emotional about that situation as well. It gives them permission. So I think we have to say that it isn't the child's fault. They need to be reassured time and time again that this has nothing to do with them and they have every right to be sad and and angry. For a child, they may come in and say, into school, I'm happy my grand's died. We need to say, is that how you're feeling? Not that it's wrong. That grand might have had an awful dementia and being very aggressive to, the, to them and the family. We don't know that. So we need to listen, really listen to what they're saying and re- reassure them that whatever they're feeling is okay. It's not okay to take out our anger on other people or to be violent. And if I come back to rainbows, that's what rainbows helps with, some coping tools to really put in place things that will help them in later life. That was Sue McDermott talking to us about child bereavement and the work specifically that Rainbows GB does to train teachers to help children deal with bereavement. If you want to learn more about Rainbows or even want to get in touch with them, you can visit their website www.rainbowsgb.org. Oh, and by the way, if you actually want to get in touch with us here, then uh, a few ways of doing that really, but you can tweet the show at art of dying well if you're on twitter who isn't or do please email if you prefer to do that and our email address the art of dying well at gmail.com snappy uh, maybe you can relate to something that sue said uh, maybe you've helped a young person get through uh, loss and help them deal with their grief uh, do get in touch we'd really like to hear from you now it's time for this death chatter it's just a chat about death Right, well, it's the part of our podcast now where we look at something that's grabbed our attention in recent weeks. Now, Steph, here's the thing. Once upon a time, nobody talked about death. You know, we're all too worried about our own mortality. This was something private that happened in hospitals, happened in hospices. No one said a word about it. And it was something that really, if we could sweep it under the carpet, as you said earlier, we don't have to think about it. That, I think, was was most people's attitude. But now there seems to be quite an extraordinary trend of of many people, brave people, uh, going through really end of life and end of life care on air. And we had a particularly strong example of uh, one that caught my eye, well, my ear, really. And that's the death of the broadcaster and media commentator, Steve Hewlett. Um, You remember that one. Steve was a presenter of BBC Radio 4's The Media Show and had rather poignantly been talking to fellow presenter Eddie Mayer ever since he was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus last year. And I think he also had a blog in The Guardian called My Cancer Diary. Now, next month's guest on our Art of Dying Well podcast is the palliative care expert, Dr Catherine Mannix. You know, she was very moved by this story and she joined us in the studio and had this to say about it. Steve Hewlett was talking to Eddie Mayer on Radio 4, having just been told that he was not now well enough to have any further treatment to save his life and that his liver disease was too bad for him to have life-saving treatment. And Eddie Mayer asked him what that was like. And what he said was actually what I see very often. He said, this is going to sound really odd. But it was just like when they told me I had cancer in the first place. 
I felt it was the next thing, the thing that I have to deal with. This is what's before me now and I have to sort out how I deal with it, or words to that effect. And that's a thing that I see very often, people not really being surprised because they've noticed that they're less well or they've got new lumps in other places or their breathing runs out halfway up the stairs instead of only at the top. You know, we're not silly. We're keeping an eye on ourselves all the time and noticing what's happening and noticing what's changing. Dr Catherine Mannix there, who we're talking to on next month's Art of Dying Well podcast. Well, I think that shows the impact, doesn't it, Steph, really? that It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a surgeon, if you're one of us, or if you're going through the process or accompanying someone through the process. These testimonies, these very, very strong and very personal testimonies, are really having an impact on people, aren't they? Absolutely. I think Steve Hewlett is an amazing example of someone who found the strength to go on air and and not just actually, you know, make a recording in a dark room by himself, which might seem easier, but actually talk face to face with someone who he was close to um, and just have a real conversation about his dying journey. And in one of his interviews with Eddie Mayer, he said, I made no secret of the fact I have cancer. I hope my experience will help other people talk about and deal with these kinds of things, that they'll see elements of my experience in theirs. And I think that there's two things to what he said, which are really important. Firstly, the fact that he was open about having cancer. And when he recognised that he was going to die, the fact that he said this quite openly you know he said at one point um you know this now is it I'm now in palliative care because I will die as opposed to being in you know treatment because Mm. hopefully I might live so I think that openness is firstly really really important um it doesn't mask anything secondly I think that he probably recognized the nature of death as a taboo in our culture and the fact that he probably as someone going through it thought oh actually I I would really like to be comforted by someone else who's going through this to know that I'm not alone and I think that that is something that's really really important that he did actually was to help other people going through similar experiences to know that they're not alone because it can obviously be one of the most lonely things in the world when you're having to face the prospect of your own death. It was also quite poignant wasn't it that as the journey went on, you could actually, you know, you hear how the voice changes perhaps during ra- mm. rather intensive treatment and you can hear the, the beeps of, of various monitors and other things. I mean, he was a great broadcaster in the sense that he knew how much to explain mm. and how much to let us listen to. I was extremely moved by it. As was I. And I think um, one of the most moving things of all actually was after Steve died, Radio 4 put together a tribute mm. to him. And... Um, you know, they could have done his greatest moments on air during his whole career or, you know, got family testimonies and stuff. But what they actually did was just played through his voice from the first interview that he did with Eddie Mayer, sort of announcing that this was the concept of his cancer diary journey up until his last one. And that was the tribute that they gave to him. And it was, you're right, the the word is moving, but It was um, also a really fascinating mirror of one of the videos that Catherine Mannix has made for our website um, where she talks the listener through the dying process. Mm. And what was amazing is that Steve Hewlett's, uh, the tribute that they did to him, 
was an almost an exact mirror image of what Catherine describes. I actually found that extremely comforting because, you know, you can hear one person say, I've seen this. But actually to have someone completely unrelated who's actually going through it to almost sort of listen to that dying process, but actually have him so at peace and it comforts the listener as well as I'm sure being a comforting experience for himself. And obviously, um, as we've said a few times, we do have Dr. Catherine Mannix in the studio. So we'll be able to listen to um, some of the quite incredible work that she's done over the years in in the field of palliative care. Uh, Again, a reminder, if you want to get in touch with us and we do want to, to hear from you, maybe you've got a topic that you want to suggest that we could talk about next month or the month after. Do get in touch, please. You can tweet us at Art of Dying Well if you've got Twitter and if not please email why not theartofdyingwell at gmail.com okay time for something a bit different Steph what we've got now is we have got the view from the chaplain's chair in this particular segment we get a little spiritual a lot of people ask to see a chaplain when in hospital not just Christians but those of other faiths and sometimes those who don't have a religious leaning or in fact anything particularly definable the view from the chaplain's chair today comes from the Catholic healthcare bishop in England and Wales. That's Bishop Paul Mason. He was a chaplain for many years at St Thomas's in South London. So he's a particularly good person to introduce us to the work of a chaplain. People presented hospitals with all manner of difficulties and brokenness. You go in to get legs fixed, you know, or you could have all sorts of diseases, and it can be so easily overlooked that at a time of illness that issues of the the human soul actually come to the fore as well. It could be people who are practicing Catholics, people who are lapsed Catholics, people who profess no faith at all, but they will present very much with questions, with uh, trying to understand their, their purpose of their life, which sometimes comes into focus during a time of illness. I think being able to be with someone to help them to look at the broken side of their soul and how they can start to make sense of it and ideally how they can piece that back together. So I think being able to be with people at that time of their life to help them walk that journey, to help them see that they are always loved by God and the time of illness, strangely enough, is a way of them experiencing that love of God. It's a real privileged place for a chaplain to be. But sometimes isn't there an issue with actually getting a chaplain in front of the patient? You'll often see when you go into hospital, you know, make sure you, you find your, your chaplain. Is, is there a challenge in actually getting a chaplain in front of a patient? Yes, I mean, when I worked in, 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 as a chaplain, it was one of the difficulties. Um, I would try several ways to, um, to get around this. Um, first of all, patients, you would think, um, would all be asked what their faith is when they go into hospital. In some hospitals they are, others they're not. But you would assume that once that information has been asked for, it will be passed on to the the chaplaincy department, but of course it it often isn't. Um, I remember once visiting a, a retired bishop in hospital and they hadn't recorded his faith, and often they didn't. And when they didn't know what faith to put. They'd simply put down no faith. It was the default option in the box. And I remember going to see this retired bishop and on the computer it said no faith, which I found rather amusing at the time. But that causes a difficulty in some ways. But the way to get round it is to ensure that people know when they go to hospital, it's not automatic that they will be seen by the priest. I would sometimes go to a bedside and a patient's or family might be a bit angry with me and say, you know, my mum's been in here for three weeks and they haven't seen you. 
And I would say, well, did, did you inform the staff that you were in hospital? And they say, oh, well, no, we didn't, because the assumption is I would be informed. Chaplains aren't, or they weren't when I was a chaplain, automatically informed. There are ways to try and get around this. I would put notes in newsletters in parishes to remind people and families on a Sunday when they read the newsletter, if you do have a family member going into hospital, be sure to um, inform the chaplaincy that that's going to happen. See your parish priest get anointed before you go into hospital. Don't wait until the very last moment. Mm. There's still a sense that you wait until the dying breath and then you, you, know, you ask for the priest to come in to administer the last rites. And of course, if you can see your priest in time before going into hospital, it will be good to be anointed before you go in. So there are a number of ways that you can actually manage to, to get to the patient. But the days of assuming that the chaplain is somehow perched in a cupboard in the corner of the ward, <laughs> as soon as he sees rosary bees, he'll pounce on the patient. You know, it, it, it doesn't work that way. And so uh, if you have a thousand-bed hospital and you've got one Catholic priest, that Catholic priest, in all likelihood, is not a full-time employee. He might be running a parish, coming in one or two days per week, he needs access to the information, where are the Catholics, which raises the question, can he have access to that information? If not, there need to be systems in place to ensure that somehow he, he receives that so he can identify where the Catholics are. Well, the now Bishop Paul Mason there, who was a chaplain for many years at St Thomas's in South London. Well, that's it, Steph. That is it. That is it. The end of the first Art of Dying Well podcast. Mm -hmm. And I think we probably should put a few reminders out there. The website with loads and loads of really good resources on it. Artofdyingwell.org. So please do check that out. And again, get in touch with us here on the show at Art of Dying Well on Twitter. And by email, theartofdyingwell at gmail.com. So that's it, Steph. What have we got next month? Well, so just to remind you all, next month we have Catherine Mannix, who is our palliative care expert. She's got over 30 years of experience working in palliative care, and she will be talking to us next month, which is very exciting. And an all-round generally lovely person, Catherine. Wonderful person. So we shall look forward to that. And it just remains to say thank you very much for listening to us, for listening to Sue McDermott from uh, Rainbows, uh, for listening to Bishop Paul Mason and our chatter about the art of dying well. Um, We'll look forward to bringing you another podcast next month. Mm -hmm.